0: Good afternoon. It gives me very, very great pleasure to introduce our keynote speaker of the conference, Professor Kathleen Burke. California born, (laughs) a BA at Berkeley, Kathy, uh, then received her PhD at Oxford, where she was a student of someone renowned in our profession, A.J.P. Taylor. Kathy is a specialist in Anglo-American relations. She's written 11 books, many of which we know and have read. Probably the one that my students most treasure, though, is the biography of A.J.P. Taylor, the first and really the finest book about a major historian. Uh, Kathy specializes in Anglo-American relations and is now currently writing a book on the British and American Empires, Her topic of her plenary lecture for today is, is there an Anglo-American alliance or a pact or anything? Professor Burke.
1: (laughs) Forgive me, I have to turn on my... Okay, Um, I'm very pleased to be here. It's my first time at the Mershon Center. It's not my first time at... uh, Ohio State, um, some years ago, Mike Hogan and possibly Carol, I don't know, flew me over to give a talk on AJP Taylor as it happens. Um, I was his last research student. Uh, I was very fond of him. Um, and one thing I picked up from Taylor, of course, is accidents mat- uh, matter. Uh, I will also say my, uh, my theory is that history is messy, <laughs> There are very few sharp edges and a lot of sort of trailing uh, fragments of of thread. So uh, I won't make a big deal of this, but there's no doubt, I think, that uh, um, something we all know, which is you never really know the answer to questions. And I think possibly that's part of uh, my theme today. Now, everyone in the world who pays attention to international affairs knows that there is a close Anglo-American relationship. Although, arguably, as an instrument of government, it's beginning to fade away. Indeed, in, in, in Great Britain, whenever there is some sort of crisis or one head of the, uh, government visits the other, the term special relationship pops up in the press. Now, I myself think this is a term for weak states because strong states don't need to claim anything of the sort. And certainly, the person least likely to use the term is a British diplomat. But it does say something about the relationship, which is the most long-standing close relationship in today's world, although I suppose a counterclaim can be made by the Nordic countries. But an important difference in the Anglo-American relationship is that it had, and still has, power. It is particularly important for Britain today that other countries perceive this closeness, which implies that Britain has a special ability to call on American influence. And this elevates Britain's own influence, at least in Europe, as well, unfortunately, as making her a really great target for uh, terrorists. But the title and organizing concept of this uh, conference stimulated me to ask, in these terms, just what constitutes this relationship? Now, even the terms turned out to be slippery. Is it an alliance, which is a formal and legal instrument, usually to deal with the possible future? Is it a pact, which my dictionary insists is primarily an informal agreement and not legally enforceable. Uh, pact is a term, I should add, which does not appear as a separate type of agreement or indeed at all in the British Diplomatic Bible, Sir uh, Ernest tais uh, Guide to Diplomatic Practice. Or is this relationship merely a habit which both countries find convenient? I want to look at the relationship in those terms and, and I hope, um, end with some sort of answer, be it ever so ambiguous. Now, I began this next paragraph by writing that countries often come to an agreement, by which I meant the general term agreement. But I then did what I usually do, but had neglected to do it this time, which is to look it up. Again, I turned to Sato. He says that in a generic sense, the term covers any meeting of minds, but that it is necessary to draw a distinction between agreements intended to have an obligatory character, that is to say, of course, legal rights and duties, and agreements which are not intended to have such a character. He adds that in a restricted sense, the term agreement means an agreement intended to have an obligatory character, but usually of a less formal character than a treaty. So when I say that the Anglo-American relationship is littered with agreements... I mean agreements intended to have an obligatory character. And prominent amongst the earlier agreements were the treaties, which essentially sorted out the aftermath of the separation from England, which included the Treaty of Paris of 1783, the Treaty of Amity, Commerce and Navigation, known as Mr. Jay's Treaty of 1795, and the Treaty of Ghent of 1814, which dealt with the War of 1812. But I do not think that this is the type of agreement with which we are primarily concerned during this conference, since they were concerned with past events rather than future possibilities. There were those during the 19th century which arose from the continuing problems arising from the expansion of the American Empire and Britain's attempts to contain it, such as the Webster-Ashburton Treaty of 1841 over the boundary between Maine and Canada, and the treaty in regard to limits westwards of the Rocky Mountains of 1846 over the Oregon Territory. There were those whose purpose was to sort out post-war conflicts, such as the Treaty of Washington of 1871 over the Alabama claims arising uh, from the Civil War. All of these stipulated, openly or by implication, future behavior by the signatories, but none of them were military treaties dealing with current and future threats by others, and this is my focus today. Now, one interesting point is that a semi-formal relationship was first proposed by the United States, and this was in 1822. George Canning, the British Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, was worried about the French drive to succeed to the power of Spain and Latin America. The Spanish colonies, you will recall, had declared their independence from Spain. And the question was, should Great Britain recognize their independence? This was a concern to Great Britain for two reasons. First, in general terms, Britain did not want France, with whom she had been repeatedly at war since the 14th century, and most recently, of course, in the Napoleonic Wars, to become again an overweening threat. Secondly, and more specifically, she did not want France or any other power to threaten her commercial interests in South America. Therefore, when in 1823, the American minister in London, Richard Rush, asked whether England would remain Passive in the event of a French attempt to bring the colonies under her control, Canning initiated what became known as the Great Flirtation, intended to produce a joint Anglo-American front against the other great powers. Meanwhile, the American Secretary of State, John Quincy Adams, <coughs> excuse me, um, was also considering recognition of the colonies. The U.S. had held back from antagonizing Spain until it, ac- it had acquired Florida, and the would-be republics had achieved some stability. In 1819, Spain ceded Florida, whilst by 1822, the fortunes of war in Latin America seemed to be going against Spain. Adams was also worried about the intentions of Russia in the hemisphere, which in 1821 had issued a UK's claiming the Pacific coast down to the 51st parallel, including the sea for 100 100 miles from the shore. Therefore, when the U.S. government received Russia's dispatches reporting the conversations with Canning, they had to decide how to respond. As it happened, Canning had decided to drop the proposal when it became obvious the agreement on satisfactory to both sides could not be reached. But the Americans did not know this. President James Madison decided to consult two former presidents, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. and and James Madison and the responses were quite interesting Jefferson wrote that quote Great Britain is the nation which can do us more harm of anyone or all on earth and with her on our side we need not fear the whole world with her then we should most sedulously cherish a cordial friendship and nothing would tend more to knit our affections than to be fighting once more side by side in the same cause Madison, in his own response, fully agreed. It is well to keep these words of the main author of the Declaration of Independence in mind when we come to the period of the Cold War. However, both Monroe and Adams were not averse... They were both averse to taking a position subordinate to that of Great Britain. As Adams reported in his memoirs, he had said to the cabinet that it would be more candid as well as more dignified to avow our principles explicitly to Russia and France, than to come in as a cockboat in the wake of the British man of war. The result was Monroe's message to Congress of the 21st December 1823 characterizes the Monroe Doctrine which I certainly do not need to explain or describe to this particular audience. This response by the Americans of suspicion of Great Britain and a determination not to be in a subordinate position was to determine American policy toward Britain for the next hundred years or so. The U.S. was quite happy to ride on British coattails, insisting, for example, that whatever concessions the latter gained from the Chinese government should also be applicable to the United States. Again, the U.S. benefited hugely from being able to depend on the Royal Navy to patrol the Atlantic Ocean, although this was something seldom, if ever mentioned, at least not publicly. How, for example, could the U.S., with its minuscule navy have responded with menaces if the European powers had wanted to move in on Latin America. Fortunately, Great Britain had no more wish to see them making inroads into the former Spanish colonies than the U.S. did. In any case, for most of the remainder of the 19th century, the two followed separate all the related paths. Great Britain concentrated on building and defending her empire, whilst the U.S. concentrated on establishing her dominion from sea to to shining sea the only serious conflicts arose over the Canadian-US border, and they seldom actually resulted in shots being fired in any sustained manner. For Great Britain, the world became a more threatening place near the end of the century. A comment by Admiral Sir Ernley Chatfield in 1934 sets out precisely the British position at the end of the 19th century. We are in the remarkable position of not wanting to quarrel with anybody Because we have got most of the world already, or the best parts of it, and we only want to keep what we have got and prevent others from taking it away from us. Both France and Russia increasingly challenged Britain's empire, formal and informal. The French primarily in Africa, the British in Central Asia and Persia, uh, because of their drive towards the borders of India, as well as in China. Then, in the 1890s, there emerged a third threat, and this was Germany. Germany wanted colonies, and to gain and keep them, she planned to build a navy capable of challenging that of Great Britain, and announced this plan in the preamble to her 1898 naval bill. Britain turned to the United States in anxiety and hope, anxious because she anticipated if there was a war with some of the European powers, the U.S. would join Britain's enemies, and if that happened, Britain would lose. Hopeful because of all the countries in the world, the U.S. was the closest in interests and ideas, liberty, free trade, and peace. However, she had to convince the United States of the desirability of this alignment. A long step in this direction was made with the Spanish-American War of 1898 and the Americans' partial misunderstanding of British actions. The explosion on the battleship USS Maine in Havana Harbor drove the U.S. into war with Spain she could hardly attack the spanish mainland but she could attack her colonies and the Asiatic squadron of the us navy under the command of commodore george dewey steamed to the philippines neutral vessels with germany's the largest group larger than the american squadron in fact arrived in manila bay to watch the german fleet was there to claim the philippines if the americans did not want them and dewey and the german commander came into conflict the germans were provocative cutting in front of U.S. ships, taking soundings in the harbor, landing supplies for the besieged Spanish, and refusing to salute the U.S. flag, required by naval courtesy. When Dewey began to bombard Manila to soften it up before an American landing, the British commander, Captain Edward Chichester, moved two ships nearby to observe the effects of the American fire. In doing so, he appeared to be placing the British deliberately between the American and German ships, thereby saving the Americans from a stab in the back although it is highly unlikely that the Germans would have fired on the Americans in any, in any case nothing that the Germans could say checked the growth of the legend which received sustenance from an erroneous count published the following year in Henry Cabot Lodge's Our War with Spain further encouragement was given to this interpretation by the fact that only Chichester fired a 21-gun salute when the American flag rose over Manila More than any real episode, this imaginary one contributed to the belief that Great Britain had been the United States' only friend during the war. The gratitude felt by many Americans and Britain's own conviction of the fundamental friendship and alignment of interest between the the two English-speaking countries encouraged the British government to develop and implement policies based on this conviction. With the rise of the German Navy and what appeared to be the consequent threat to the home islands the United Kingdom reconfigured her naval dispositions. She signed the Anglo-Japanese Alliance in 1922, her first peacetime alliance in the modern period. We'll forget the 1422 uh, treaty with Portugal here. Allowing her to leave the responsibility for patrolling the China waters to Japan and moving her ships to the Mediterranean and to the English Channel in the North Sea. But she also withdrew her fleet from the Caribbean, Leaving it to the US Navy to patrol that area. For the United States, this constituted recognition by the British Empire that the Caribbean was an American lake. For Britain, convinced as she was that the two countries would never go to war, she had incorporated the United States into her defense strategy. This is also an approach that we might keep in mind when considering the later 20th century, specifically after the Falklands War of 1982. The question of an Anglo-American alliance was never a serious one until the First World War, and then it was serious only for the British. As we all know, the U.S. maintained a benign neutrality until it was torpedoed into the war. The British then hoped that the U.S. would sign an alliance, and this, of course, was not to be the case. President Wilson was appalled by the so-called secret treaties which had been signed by the British. These set out the war aims of, of the Entente, which included the transfer to Russia and Italy of territory belonging to other states and which was often inhabited by other nationalities. Wilson wanted nothing to do that with them. Indeed, he refused to be an ally at all, but was an associate power, whatever that meant in international law. What it meant in Washington was that numbers of individual agreements had to be signed. But these were more in the form of memoranda than of contracts, One continuing, uh, footnote here, one continuing complaint the British had of the United States, including in, uh, especially in the Second World War, was that they would never put anything on paper. What you had was an alliance of sorts without a treaty, because one side believed that a treaty was neither desirable nor necessary. As far as the Americans were concerned, they were going to win the war for the Europeans. And when that assumption was combined with feelings of, uh, of inferiority, And resentment that the British probably believed that the Americans were inferior, and many British did think this for various reasons and did not always hide this belief, an associate relationship combined with the goodwill, which usually eventually triumphed, was probably the best that could be achieved. But however it was described, it was a nerve wracking and sometimes humiliating experience for the British. The Americans feared they would be led down the garden path by the crafty Europeans and many were intensely suspicious. It was difficult to come to agreement over money and commodities, let alone on military matters. It was a matter of high policy, that the U.S. would retain control over her own money and over her own military forces, which made any sort of alliance with her a sometimes fraught and often disappointing affair. During the Second World War, the British Army commander of the Burma campaign, General Sir William Slim, wrote that, Allies are the most aggravating of people, a comment with which his predecessors in the First World War would have fervently agreed. The interwar period can be characterized by the banal but correct phrase as demonstrating both conflict and consensus, although it was only towards the beginning of the 1940s that much of the latter became evident. During the 1920s, the relationship was fraught with conflict over the war debts. After all her losses, should Britain have to pay the U.S. back for debts incurred in the common cause? Certainly, said the U.S., and over the size of the two navies. The U.S. government argued for a cut in the size of navies. <clears throat> and because, of course, the British Navy was much larger than the Americans, for the British, the Americans were trying to get a large navy on the, on the cheap. The big navy party in the U.S., however, insisted that the U.S. Navy should be the largest in the world as befitted the strength of the United States. For Churchill and other Britons, a large navy was vital for the defense of the realm and the sea lanes, and they believed that the U.S. only wanted the biggest navy for reasons of prestige. I won't bore uh, bore you with the details, although I think they're fascinating myself, but a compromise was sorted out in 1932-33. During the remainder of the 1930s, the British were driven mad by the American refusal to take seriously the responsibilities in international affairs inherent in her power. The U.S. wanted to be a great power, with the attendant respect and deference, but did not want the international responsibilities of such a position. The British tried to convince the U.S. that their own interests in the Far East, not just British interests, were threatened by the rise of Japan, but they were mostly ignored, except by elements of the Navy, I should add. The U.S., after all, was caught up with domestic discord over whether the United States should be involved in foreign affairs at all. Again, I don't need to explain the situation to this audience. Nevertheless, as storm clouds darkened, various American decision-makers did come to agreements with the British. One of the first of these agreements concerned intelligence, and I do want to, want to emphasize these all took place while the United States was still neutral. In July 1940, William Wild Bill Donovan, the future head of the Office of Strategic Services and later of the CIA, traveled to Britain as President Roosevelt's special envoy to look at the current British intelligence capabilities. Roosevelt, who as Assistant Secretary of the Navy during the First World War, uh, had visited London, had responsibility for the Office of, Office of Naval Intelligence and had visited London in 1918. And had been very impressed with the British intelligence effort. Didn't know that the British, of course, had broken the American cipher quite easily and was reading everything they knew. Woodrow Wilson made up the cipher himself, which caused the British to fall about laughing, more or less. Anyhow, um, he was thus open to Donovan's suggestion upon his return that the two countries develop a full intelligence collaboration. Therefore, in London in July 1940, at a meeting between the British chiefs of staff, and the American Military Observer Mission, it was decided that, quote, the time had come for a free exchange of information between the two governments. The following month, the U.S. broke the Japanese code purple and a few months later delivered a copy of a purple machine to the British and showed them how it worked. The British were more circumspect about what they revealed, and their decryption of the Luftwaffe Ultra code remained a deep, dark secret for fear that it would leak in the United States. Nonetheless, Churchill insisted that intelligence relevant to U.S. ships be given to the Americans. But British willingness to share signals intelligence grew with growing Anglo-American naval cooperation in the North Atlantic in the summer of 1941. With U.S. entry into the war, a combined intelligence committee for the combined chiefs of staff was established. Then, in late 1942 and early 1943, the two countries agreed to a fuller sharing of results, even more unprecedented unprecedented, and probably unique in modern history, they agreed on a sharing of personnel. In December 1942, Washington opened the so-called secret room, and from early 1943, the British and American crypt- cryptanalysis of naval enigma was carried out according to a single program of coordinated by Bletchley, the center of British um, decryption programs in, in the U.K., communication via direct signal links between the U-boat tracking rooms in Washington, London, and from May 1943, Ottawa, became so close that for the remainder of the war, they operated virtually as a signal signal organization. This was all formalized in the spring of 1943 by the signing of the BRUSA, uh, B-R-U-S-A, obviously, agreement on the complete exchange of intelligence and by an exchange of missions between the U.S. Special Branch and Bletchley. The US would take care of Japan, whilst the British concentrated on Germany and Italy. The success of this cooperation laid the foundation for the enduring post-war signals intelligence alliance, formalized by the UK-USA agreement, and including Canada, Australia, and New New Zealand. I've given this detail, as I will return to later, because it's, uh, as I will mention later, it's one of the bones of the post-war Anglo-American military alliance, this intelligence cooperation. A second pre-war decision was initiated by the U.S. Navy. <clears throat> Excuse me for this. The Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Harold R. Stark, believed that American security had previously and still depended upon a strong British Navy and empire to man- maintain the balance of power and prevent the emergence of a hegemonic European power. Therefore, American support of Great Britain against Germany was vital, since if Britain was defeated, the U.S. would lose the protection of the Royal Navy and, he wrote, would find itself alone and at war with the world. He proposed that the U.S. should assume the strategic defensive against Japan in the Pacific, whilst the U.S. and Britain both would focus on the Atlantic European theater. Both the Army and Roosevelt agreed and Stark suggested that high-level staff conversations with the British should be initiated. These began in Washington in January 1941. Many of the American delegates were intensely suspicious of the British, with one warning the American negotiators that never absence from British minds are their post-war interests, commercial and military. There's a certain self-blinding self-righteousness there. In any case, Desperate for additional agreements which would lure the U.S. closer to actual participation in the war, Churchill, as the Minister of Defense, instructed the British mission to accede to American strategic plans, almost whatever they were. They therefore all agreed that, should both countries find themselves at war with all of the Axis powers, the U.S. Navy would assume a defensive stance in the Pacific, whilst they would jointly concentrate against Germany in the Atlantic. The agreement was signed in March 1941. The following month, US military strategists similarly revamped American war plans to provide for a Europe first strategy in conjunction with Britain and a defensive effort in the Pacific. The March 1941 agreement became the strategic basis for the eventual formal alliance between the two countries. A third decision concerned the provision of finance and supplies. During the First World War, the British financed in the United States the purchases of France, Russia, Belgium, Italy, Romania, and Greece, besides her own, and the effort crippled her financially. As a result, the end of the war saw Britain supplanted by the United States as as the supreme international financial power. Although recovering to a certain extent, by the late 1930s, as it became more and more obvious that Britain would soon again be at war, there was a desperate attempt to safeguard financial reserves. You will remember that the U.S. Congress had insisted that anything sold to a belligerent should be on a cash-and-carry basis, i.e. it had to be paid for with dollars and had to be carried away in the purchasers' own ships. By 1940, Britain was becoming desperate. The Germans began their Blitzkrieg, And in May, the cabinet threw financial prudence to the winds and decided that Britain would buy all of the munitions and supplies that the U.S. could could provide until the dollars and gold ran out. It was particularly vital that the British be allowed to buy munitions and aircraft on credit. But Roosevelt, for one, did not believe that the British were in such dire straits as they claimed. He is quoted as commenting, after a quick glance at a U.S. Treasury estimate of British dollar resources, well, they aren't bust, there's lots of money there. The British ambassador to the United States urged Churchill to make a personal appeal to Roosevelt once the November 1940 election was over. Churchill took up the idea with alacrity and provided a wide ranging synoptic view of the war situation. He then called for help with finance and shipping, and above all in in buying munitions and aircraft on credit. Roosevelt received the letter whilst on a a post-election cruise in the Caribbean thought about it for a day or two and then came up with the Lend-Lease idea it was after all a means by which the U.S. could defend itself by proxy the British were delighted but Congress of course took more convincing there had to be recompense or the consideration as it was called always capitalized but it was not to be repaid in dollars no more war debts but in policies goods provided could not be used for exports and discrimination against any product produced by the other was prohibited. Britain would be required to abandon imperial preference, by which members of the empire and commonwealth agreed preferential tariffs for each other, and the sterling area, within which other currencies were tied to the pound. Britain was to embrace multilateralism, but she would still face very high American tariffs. After very tough negotiations, and the threat of the fragmentation of the Churchill government, the U.S. backed off. And the Master Lend Lease Agreement was signed in March 1941, the same month as as the Strategic Agreement. (coughs) If I don't stop coughing, someone else is going to have to give this paper. By this agreement, the U.S. provided $27 billion worth of supplies to the British Empire. However, what is usually forgotten is the existence of what is called Reverse Lend Lease, by which the British provided $6 billion to the Americans primarily raw materials from the empire the Americans however disregarded this and tended to treat the British more as supplicants than allies in this area indeed later in the war a number of American officials used or tried to use Lend-Lease as a lever against the British Secretary of the Treasury Morgenthau wanted to destroy the pound as an international currency to allow the dollar to replace it and at one time had forced British currency reserves down to three million pounds Cordell Hull, the Secretary of State, was the power behind the attempt to force an end to imperial preference. As one of his officials, Dean Acheson, said, this was their only chance to do it. The third predator was the armed services. In September 1944, the chief of the supply services suggested that Lend Lease be used to force the British to turn their bases in the Pacific over to the Americans, because the latter would need them after the war in order to exercise wide control of this area. According to the General Board of the Navy, this was not imperialism because the islands had no economic value. Other suggestions were that the U.K. be forced to turn over the Caribbean bases to the U.S. permanently and that the British concede unconditional landing rights for both U.S. military and commercial aircraft at British bases around the world. In other words, the British would receive what they needed but no more and the price was constant and sometimes very strong pressure to accede to American wishes and desires, which had little to do with the war, but a very great deal to do with American post-war power Then, lease aid was vital to Britain and just sufficient but it came with ropes attached The fourth pre-war arrangement was over nuclear matters Essentially, scientists in Britain invented the bomb Whilst the U.S. was still neutral, the U.K. gave to Roosevelt the Frisch-Perils memorandum, setting this out The U.S., which had the money, the scientific manpower, because most of Britain's scientists at that moment were concentrating on radar, and the space, took it over and directed the development and building of the bomb. Scientists from both countries worked together at Los Alamos. This was well and good, and at the urging of Churchill, what was known as the Quebec Agreement was drawn up and signed in the autumn of 1943. It had three provisions. Neither the British nor the Americans would use the bomb without the other's consent. Neither would give information to a third party without the other's consent. And the U.S. had exclusive rights to exploitation, commercial exploitation. But concern grew in Britain about the need to continue cooperation after the war. And this led to talks between Churchill and Roosevelt at Hyde Park in September 1944. The result was the aid Memoir. Clause 2 of which stated that full collaboration between the US and the UK in developing atomic research for military and commercial purposes would continue after the defeat of Japan unless and until it was terminated by joint agreement. This was one of those signed agreements which turned out to be more informal and thus not enforceable than the British had expected. In spite of this agreement, cooperation and the exchange of information were abruptly ended. The legal vehicle was the Atomic Energy Act of 1946, known as the McMahon Act, which effectively cut off all exchanges of information with any country, including the UK. A final pre-war agreement, the Atlantic Charter, was signed in August 1941. This took place at a conference in Placentia Bay off the coast of Newfoundland, the first of what would be a series of wartime summit conferences attended by Roosevelt and Churchill. This produced a broad statement of war aims, even though the US was still neutral. It pledged both countries to a post war settlement based on a series of fundamental principles. Amongst these were no territorial aggrandizement for themselves, no territorial changes for others without their consent, national self determination and self government, freedom from want and fear, and the establishment of a new League of Nations. Churchill had hoped to convince the U.S. to declare war but he was disappointed also disappointing and even alarming was the fact that the British had been forced to agree to a series of stipulations which they did not like serious differences between the two countries simmered beneath the surface and occasionally above it but for Churchill national survival was at stake promise what you have to promise it has been argued that the Atlantic Charter was in fact the Anglo-American alliance Most of the provisions would not come into force if the U.S. did not become a belligerent, and the clear implication of the charter was that she would. And then Japan came to Britain's rescue, and for the second time America was bombed and torpedoed into war. The Arcadia Conference from the 22nd of December 1941 to mid-January 1942 actually created the formal alliance. It established their global strategy and the essential principles for in- conducting the war, including the innovatory agreement for a unified command in that whichever country provided the most troops in a theater would also provide the overall commander of the troops, rather than a group of different commanders having more or less to work as a committee. The combined chiefs of staff and many of the combined boards were also set up, covering a myriad of supplies and services. The alliance against the Axis powers was formally compl- Proclaimed on New Year's Day 1942. Entitled The Declaration of the United Nations, it announced that all of the 26 signatories agreed to the principles enunciated in the Atlantic Charter, pledged all of their resources against the Axis, promised to cooperate with each other, and agreed that none of them would make a separate peace. This then was the first true and formal alliance between the U.S. and Great Britain. It is true that it was possibly, probably the closest and most successful in history, with the combined commands, strategies, and even, it seems, civil services. Memories of many of the veterans, civil and military, were warm, and many remained close after the war, as they continued to work together in NATO or the UN or the diplomatic corps or the navies. But it must also be said that it was bedeviled by widespread and apparently ineradicable American suspicion of British motives. Their intensity varied. The relationship was closest in the European theater. In the Far East, though, relations were often dire. The commander-in-chief of the U.S. fleet was convinced that the British were manipulating the Americans to recover their empire, and subordinates took their cue from their commander. The historian Christopher Thorne, in his classic book on Anglo-American relations and the Far East in the War, concluded that in the Asian theater, the British and Americans were only allies of a kind. The war, in short, was transformational. The British had to learn how to give up power, and the Americans had to learn how to exercise it. In 1900, Great Britain was the supreme international power. She had an empire on which the sun never set, supported by the pound sterling, the only international currency, and protected by the Royal Navy, which dominated the oceans. The United States was a non-servile dependent. By 1945, the positions were reversed. The U.S. was now the dominant power, and it was in Britain's interest to maintain the alliance. There is an irony here. You will remember the comment by Thomas Jefferson in 1823 that with Britain on our side, we need not fear the whole world. In January 1949 a group of high officials in the British government met for an informal discussion on European cooperation. Their conclusion was that, since post-war planning began, our policy has been to secure close political, military, and economic cooperation with USA. This has been necessary to get economic aid. It will always be decisive for our security. We hope to secure a special relationship with USA and Canada, for in the last resort... We cannot rely upon the European countries. What is especially interesting to me is that it was the first time in history that one superpower had passed the baton to the next superpower without a battle between them having been fought. But the UK was also of use to the US. A State Department policy statement of June 1948 demonstrated a new appreciation of the value of the British Empire probably one of the most spectacular changes in American perceptions in the, of the world and the UK's place in it since it occurred since the revolution. Written during a, a period of very tense negotiations between the two countries over the Marshall Plan, it states that British friendship and cooperation is necessary for American defense. The United Kingdom, the dominions, colonies, and dependencies form a worldwide network of strategically located territories of great military value. Which have served as defensive outposts and as bridgeheads for operations. Subject to our general policy of favoring eventual self de- de- determination of peoples, it is our objective that the integrity of this area be maintained. Or, as it was later put by Frank Wisner, head of covert operations for the CIA, wherever there is some place we want to destabilize, the British have an island nearby. Mutual need was, therefore, the foundation of the post-war Anglo-American alliance of a kind. It is a military alliance. The combined chiefs of staff continued their work until this was subsumed into NATO, until 1949, in fact. The formal military alliance established in 1949, just in case you didn't know. NATO was first proposed and then midwifed by the British Foreign Secretary, Ernest Bevan. Bevan was desperate for the United States to commit itself to the defense of Europe, since the alternative appeared to be Soviet domination, even if not formal occupation. This is a major piece of evidence supporting the argument of the Norwegian historian Geir Lundestadt that the U.S. relationship with Europe was, and perhaps still is, an empire by invitation. The U.S. also extended economic aid to 16 countries to enable them to kickstart their economies. Each country had to sign a bilateral treaty with the United States, which contained some strict quid pro quos for the aid. Britain believed that that several of the terms of the treaty were so damaging to the UK that she decided to forego martial aid rather than to sign the bilateral. In the end, the U.S. need for British foreign policy support was such that she agreed to take out the offending clauses. As I stated earlier, the bones of the alliance are the intelligence and nuclear relationships. The intelligence relationship continues because it benefits both countries, although the U.S., with its vast resources, is the dominant partner in signals intelligence. By report, the U.K. is rather better at human intelligence, also known as spies. The nuclear relationship has seen more fundamental changes. The UK was so outraged at the Americans cutting off cooperation that she decided to build her own bomb. There were important reasons other than peak, of course. First of all, when this decision was taken in 1947, NATO had not yet been formed, and thus the British government could not count on American support against the Soviet Union. It was believed that deterrence was vital since the U.K. had neither the population nor an army the size of the USSR's, and only the bomb would be uh, threatening enough to deter. Besides, the U.K. had invented the bomb, and she should have one. But it is also clear that it was to be a weapon against a friend as well as against an enemy. The British have always found it difficult to believe that the U.S., if push came to shove, really would trade Chicago or New York for London. Besides, it was clear that to have a place at the international high table, you had to be a nuclear power, and that without this power, the U.S. would not pay sufficient attention to British interests. Therefore, she built a bomb, which was tested in 1952. The United States, however, was by then developing a thermonuclear bomb, and once it was successfully tested, the British cabinet decided that Britain must also possess one. On the other hand, British developments in the peaceful use of atomic energy were far in advance of those of the United States. She now had something to contribute to an Anglo-American nuclear agreement. President Eisenhower, who later told British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan that the McMahon Act was, quote, one of the most deplorable incidents in American history, of which he personally felt ashamed, was sympathetic to British arguments for reestablishing cooperation and the exchange of information. It was also not unrelated to the need to rebuild the relationship after the split over Suez. In March 1952, March 1954, the two sides signed the Wilson-Alexander Agreement, the first joint targeting agreement. In January 1957, the U.S. suggested and the British welcomed the deployment of ICBMs in Britain. In October 1957 came the of a shock of Sputnik, the world's first satellite. The UK had successfully tested her own H bomb in May, which she had developed entirely without American help. Eisenhower pressed Congress to repeal the McMahon Act, which they did. This cleared the way for the two countries to sign in 1958 the U.S.-UK Mutual Defense Agreement, which is a nuclear alliance. Information could now be exchanged and it also authorized the transfer of materials. The British, for example, supplied plutonium to the U.S., which was produced, along with electricity for commercial use, by the world's first nuclear reactor. In 1962, the U.S. agreed to supply the Polaris delivery system to the U.K., to be armed with British-built nuclear warheads. This was in exchange for the building of an American base for its nuclear submarines at Holy Lock, near to Glasgow in Scotland. In due course... Britain also received Trident, and this relationship continues today. Although if after this election those are elected who think Trident should be given up, uh, I may have to revamp that particular sentence. Theoretically, these are NATO weapons, but Britain has the right to use them if the country is in supreme perils. This is the basis for her claim that she possesses an independent nuclear deterrent, a concession extracted from the Americans in an operation akin to pulling a tooth. What, then, can we say about alliances based on the Anglo-American experience? First of all, there have to be international interests in common and, in particular, a common enemy. No, no country makes an alliance for the fun of it. In this case, Germany was the common enemy during the two world wars, the USSR during the Cold War, and unnamed terrorists now. I trust we shall agree not to call it the War on Terror. The relationship does not have to be equal. In fact, it seldom is. But to be durable, each has to have something of value to contribute. For most of the post-war period, Britain has had a well-trained professional army which would actually fight. It went through a steep decline in the 1960s and 1970s due to British economic weakness. But her victory in the Falklands War against Argentina in 1982 convinced the Americans that British military forces would be an asset. Their worth was demonstrated in the 1991 Gulf War. And since the late 1980s, I gather, according to chats with the Chief of Army Operations in Washington, American war plans assume that the British will also be fighting. Is this analogous to Britain's incorporating the U.S. into her own defense strategy in 1901? These arrangements are apart from NATO, since only in the late 1990s did all agree that NATO troops could be used out of area. A durable alliance is likely to be based on favorable views of the other. In 1950, the State Department set out its perception of the alliance. Quote, no other country has the same qualifications for being our principal ally and partner as the UK. It has internal political strength and important capabilities in the political, economic, and military fields throughout the world. Most important, the British share our fundamental objectives and standards of conduct To achieve our foreign policy objectives, we must have the cooperation of our allies and friends. The British, and with them the rest of the Commonwealth, particularly the older Dominions, are our most reliable and useful allies with whom a special relationship should exist. This relationship is not an end in itself, but must be used as an instrument of achieving common objectives. We cannot afford to permit a deterioration in our relationship with the British. This implies more than a little fellow feeling and trust. This trust can lead one astray, of course. The UK trusted that the US would, if not support them, would at least not oppose their invasion of Egypt in the Suez Crisis. To the astonishment of the Prime Minister, Anthony Eden, and the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Harold Macmillan, the US did not. In fact, the US refused to support the pound, and refused to supply the U.K. with oil to replace what the U.K. lost with the blowing up of the oil pipelines. Indeed, Eisenhower cut off all contact with the U.K. By report, the only link was uh, in Egypt, in fact, between the the, uh, uh, representatives of MI6 and CIA. This was a profound alliance failure. Eisenhower's comment... Uh, in fact, commented the, in 1960s the Richard Nixon, the single most appalling decision he'd made in foreign policy was not to support the British at Suez. Again, though, in the Anglo-American example, there is a wide range of popular links. The language, first of all. As Bismarck said in 1898, when asked what the decisive factor in modern history was, replied, the fact that the North Americans speak English. As a counter to that, however, one should remember Dean Acheson's statement that, of course a unique relation existed between Britain and America. Our common language in history ensured that, but unique did not mean affectionate. And indeed, it's well to remember that until the Korean War, the U.S. and the U.K. were on opposite sides of war more often than they were uh, on the same side. Nevertheless, a feeling of a common heritage has inclined the two populations towards sympathy and, sometimes, affection for the other, a feeling aided by fighting two world wars and, in earlier years, gratitude on the British side for lend-lease and martial aid. This is a wasting asset, however, and popular culture is now a likelier glue. But there are also links between the academic, legal, and cultural communities. On a governmental level, the navies work closely together, and the Foreign Office and State Department actually exchange personnel. I was speaking to the uh, uh, first secretary of the British uh, American first secretary in their embassy in, in uh, London a couple of years ago, and he'd spent an entire year as an intern in the um, Foreign Office. Actually, exchanges of personnel. I also spoke once to uh, the minister, the American, the American uh, minister, in the British in the American embassy in Britain, and he said that often his colleagues in the State Department... um, Skip this again. He was uh, an American stationed, as it were, at a fairly high level in the Foreign Office, and he said that uh, Foreign Office members often gave him uh, copies of cables that came from the British ambassador and so forth in their embassy in Washington, and he tended to learn a lot more from those particular cables than he learned from the State Department itself. Britain and America share a business cycle, which is not shared by the continental European countries. And finally, one must not forget habit. Attention is paid to the closeness or lack of it between prime ministers and presidents, but they can facilitate, not decide, at least in this country. But of equal, if not more important, are the habitual working together of officials and officers. They stay there whilst the leaders change. Even when the United States and the United Kingdom were in conflict at the UN during the early days of the Falcons' war, the British and American ambassadors to the the UN still informally shared with each other communications from their own governments, which were thought to be interesting or useful to the other. But the most important of these factors for the durability of an alliance are common interests and an ability to contribute. Without these, once a crisis is passed, there would be little point in an alliance. My own feeling is that the Anglo-American alliance will endure a uh, a while longer, but in defense terms, whilst Britain spends vastly more than the continental, continental Europeans, nevertheless, current and future economic weakness may preclude its being enough to support a useful force. On the other hand, more than once, the U.S. has just wanted an ally, even if it couldn't fight very extensively, and the Vietnam War is a good example of this. Uh, when according to Lyndon Johnson all the Americans wanted from the British was a platoon of bagpipers to show that the U.S. did not lack allies both countries have extensive international interests and the U.S. has to have someone to talk to the British diplomatic corps is one of the best in the world and its members often carry out negotiations what the Americans could not do themselves such as in the Middle East but as American demographics change and American interest veers from Europe to the Pacific, the U.S. will eventually look to others. The decision as to its durability is probably more of an American one, although the British uh, might look more to Europe, and, of course, uh, the second largest investor in Britain after the Americans is India. For the British, the single most important need since 1945 has been to co-opt American power to further its own interests. The price it pays, and it's sometimes a heavy one, is to be a dependable ally. Both gain, but the question is for how much longer. Its end would certainly constitute the end of an era which has lasted over a century. Thanks very much. Yep. Yeah, fine.
0: Uh, we have a few minutes for questions. The next panel begins at 2 o'clock. And we do want to have a break, but are there any questions?
2: Okay. Right. point is that I think that if you want to make a general statement about alliance, it's difficult to do with the Anglo-American uh, special relationship because what you have is two insular, you know, uh, offshore balancing uh-huh. powers that are maritime powers. Both of them have an interest in keeping Europe in a balanced power situation. I mean, neither, both of them. When Wilson was president, he, his greatest fear was that one side would win and the other side wouldn't. One side won, Germany would dominate the continent. If Russia won, then Russia would dominate the continent. And uh, then the U.S. would have to be a garrison state and give up its democracy. So the, the point is they, Britnell, of course, always wanted to think about balance power on the continent. So they shared that interest it's because they're maritime offshore bound. And so they can possess a lot of power, and they don't threaten each other. That's not true of most alliances, which are they're
1: not that type of problem. Michael? Well, could, I, could I just, could could I just answer know, that one sure. first? Um, yeah. I mean, yes, uh, not wanting one side to win or the other, but, of course, it was Roosevelt mm-hmm. who insisted on unconditional uh, uh, surrender when the British thought this was rather stupid, in fact, because you couldn't then get off, a, uh, you know, take away weaker powers from Germany. Yes, they're both maritime powers, uh, but that made Britain a global balance of power uh, primary nation. Um, you could say the Americans are doing the same. Um, on the other hand, the British thought then they didn't have any permanent friends or enemies. This has now changed, of course. They hope they have a permanent friend in the United States, at least not a permanent enemy. I agree with you, there are elements in common, but I think probably there are more profound differences, and they only really have alliances when there's an enemy.
2: Michael. So you, you mentioned the point about this is, you know, the transition from Britain's uh, dominance to American dominance sort of peaceful pass of the baton. And, and you hear this a lot when people talk about the Anglo-American special relationship. But I was wondering your thoughts on this, because I've heard arguments about this. Like, How much does it also have to do with the fact that when this baton passing happened, you know, Britain had to also deal with growing German power, growing Japanese power, growing Soviet power. And so it sort of looked around and growing American power. And so it was going to decline anyway. So you really just sort of, I mean friendly relations with the U.S. and all those four countries, but this was it really a peaceful
0: passing baton or the, the best of a series of bad options?
1: One thing that I didn't mention, masses of things I didn't mention, but one of them was that the, the the British, as I was trying to say, had been since the late 19th century encouraging the United States to come in and be a power, be a great power. The U.S. wanted the advantages. It didn't want the disadvantages. So passing the baton, I mean, obviously the British hoped that there would be a balance between the powers of the two. They could see the United States. They could see the power. Britain, uh, America by 1910 um, was producing more steel than all of Europe, put together. Um, British weren't stupid. They knew this was going to be the case. They hoped they would be able to guide the United States into ways of actually behaving like a great power. One problem with the United States, one one difference between the two, is that in Europe, over thousands of years, countries ha- are, are together, and they're at war or they're not at war, but you know that things that... that um, There'll be war, then there'll be not war, and you, there's a limit to what you can actually oppose on another country um, if you don't want to do the next war. How did the Americans do? Well, they had Canada on one side, they had Mexico on the other, and they had moats. This is a threat. They didn't know how to handle being a great power. They didn't know there were limits in which you could impose your own sovereignty on another nation. They didn't know the extent to which other nations would accept what they wanted because of the sort of power-focused way they did it. And the British hoped, they knew it was going to be, but they hoped it would actually, that the baton would pass eventually um, in ways that would be good for them and not in a sense damaging to the rest of the world.
2: Not a lot of them in here. <laughs>
1: The British have a way with words, there's no doubt about that. <laughs> Um, well, the, the French, the French uh, is, is 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 a bit uh, a bit difficult. Yes, there was a there was a. a, a like the that's what I like—a good, straightforward, impartial approach to these things, as befits historians, of course. Um, First of all, the Americans would never have won the revolution. Well, they didn't win. They just didn't lose, essentially. They, they only needed Britain to accept. They weren't going to, they weren't going to de- defeat the British Empire, were they? And they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have uh, achieved what they did without French aid. This one thing it is something that's forgotten in a lot of textbooks. So I make a, a big deal of Not a big deal. I do make the point in, in a book I published a couple of years ago on Anglo-American relations. Um, secondly, remember, there was uh, the American, Franco-American quasi-war. Uh, just a few years later. um, By the First World War, obviously the Americans, you know, Lafayette, we are here. Lafayette-Espadrille came over feeling there there were links. Um, But if we have alliances, um, that becomes more difficult depending on terms of the meaning of the act, as it were. Um, Yes, there was nuclear, but this isn't until about 1971 or 72, because remember, when the Americans would not tell de Gaulle not only where any American um, nuclear weapons were stationed in France, but even where there were, that's when he threw NATO out of of, of Paris into Brussels. So the question of a Franco-American long-living alliance is shot, shall we say, with a few holes, I think. Well, America has lots of special relationships. So they have a special relationship with Germany when they need money to, to be paid to, to the Russians. They have one with Saudi Arabia because of the oil. Um, um, Japan, yes. Uh, uh, Australia assumes it has an, Anglo, it, an Anglo-Australian because they will always fight. Um, they were found in Vietnam. They were found in Korea. They were found. They're found in Iraq and so forth. Um, <clears throat> the Anglo-American one. Slightly different, the Anglo-Israeli alliance, if I may say so, shows the strength of a weak nation. That the United States has interests; it also has a lot of domestic pressure, which we are in this in this country, which we uh, again I don't have to describe to this this gathering. And the question is, what does the United States positively gain from an Anglo-Israeli alliance? The alternative is that uh, Britain does not threaten to. Bring America into sort of larger war, for example. Uh, They don't take money uh, from the United States in the in the the same way. I have no doubt. I have no. I don't know. Obviously, between uh, through perhaps the general agreement to borrow and so forth. But the United States takes Britain for granted. I think because this trust means it assumes it will always be there. Uh, It isn't a dangerous ally. Israel is a dangerous ally. And so that's special, I think, only in that it takes a remarkable amount of American time, money, and anxiety to maintain it.
2: Bill. You said at the end that um, that habit is kind of an important part in alliance sustenance. Would you would you
0: agree that you want, certainly one of the keys in habit is institutionalization?
1: Well, that's what I was. I was rather trying to hint um, the fact that. Uh, um, well, the Foreign Office and the State Department. The navies have comparability. You know, they have the same ball bearings, you know, the same uh, types of of, uh, girders and guns and and personnel are exchanged all the time. Um, Of course, there's a lot of of cooperation, special cooperation through NATO. Um, The intelligence relationship, the institutional relationship there and still the exchange of personnel. The fact that I mean, one really interesting institutionalization, I wouldn't have thought it in those terms, but that probably is a good summing up, is between the two foreign policy establishments. The difficulty with American relationships, um, I am told, again, um, with France and Germany and so forth, is they come over and say there's a problem or they might come over and lecture, or they might. Britain decides that there is a problem. They come to the United States and they say, look, you've got this problem. We've proposed this, this, and this as solutions. Um, the fact that uh, the pen is such a powerful weapon in Britain, that is to say you can, you, you can get a lot of um, promotion in the civil service by your ability to draft um, again, you have, you have situations. He, he who drafts controls, I think we can agree, because then everyone has to uh, respond to the draft instead of bringing normally their own draft. Um, there was one occasion, which some of you I'm sure know about, uh, with Kissinger, um, when the Soviets proposed a nuclear arrangement with the United States, and... Kissinger, the, the, the permanent secretary, second permanent secretary, I think, of the Foreign Office was actually in Washington. And Kissinger asked him to draft the American response because he didn't trust the State Department. They weren't good enough. And so there you are, <laughs> having essentially Kissinger treating uh, the British Foreign Office as a desk officer and depending on them to produce a draft that would be acceptable to the Soviets but wouldn't commit the United States to anything. You can't get much more institutionalization than that, I think.